It was a string of recent tragedies that pushed Jeff J. out into the sea on a sailboat riddled with mechanical issues destined for the Caribbean. His father had passed away, his marriage had ended, his brother had committed suicide, and all this after his own alcoholism had brought him within inches of his own death. But this urge to swap the sorrows of the past for a fresh start left him impetuously journeying into the Atlantic Ocean into the teeth of a December gale with a boat that had been battered to pieces from an earlier crash. With no power, no lights or radio, no navigation, no way to restart his auxiliary engine to head for safety, he was 150 miles beyond land with very little chance of being found. With an old kerosene lamp and a small flashlight to pour a tiny bit of light into the tunneling darkness, the sailboat's rig twisted the deck violently, causing explosive sounds in the cabin below. Jeff lay for seven days waiting to die before Good Samaritans found him and picked him up in a small dinghy and ferried him to their marina. This wasn't Jeff's only brush with death. It wasn't the only time a miraculous last-minute hand pulled him from the clutches of death into the light. It wasn't the only time Jeff was living in seemingly interminable darkness. The darkness of the ship's near-death experience was serene compared to the battle with addiction he's been living his whole life. Welcome to Detroit Stories, a podcast on a mission to boldly share the stories of the people and communities in Southeast Michigan. These are the stories that fascinate and inspire us. Being a mom is the most challenging and rewarding job in the world. At Catholic Charities of Southeast Michigan, they make it a bit easier for moms who are feeling alone, struggling financially, or who need an extra hand to help them establish a secure and happy family. To learn more about the ways you can help moms in need, visit ccsem.org forward slash respect life. Jeff's upbringing didn't have the appearances of a life destined towards alcoholism. He grew up in Gross Point, the oldest of five children, the son of a lawyer and stay-at-home mom. Uh, I, uh, and you wouldn't have been able to tell it by looking at me at 18 years old. You know, my dad was an attorney and business owner with my grandfather. My mother was a homemaker who did a lot of volunteer activities. It was uh, a pretty normal family, and I went to Catholic school grades 1 through 10. You know, so I was going to Mass all the time, and was an altar boy, head of the altar boys at St. Paul's. And um, and so I had been instructed in the faith uh, and, and had a lively faith growing up. I mean, my father would get down on his knees with my brother and myself when we were growing up, little boys, teach us how to pray, the Our Father, the Hail Mary, et cetera, et cetera. I was a National Merit Scholar. I was president of our student association at my high school and had gotten lots of offers to good universities and colleges and so forth. And really nobody could tell by looking at my outside what was going on on the inside. On the inside was a man tortured by his newfound loss of faith and love with philosophy that left him asking questions and looking to himself for the answers. But uh, that faith kind of evaporated in high school, I would say, uh, much because of the intellectual fashion of the time, and then going to college only made that worse, I would say. Jeff went to Antioch College in Ohio to study philosophy. 
It was there that the questions he started asking were answered by a decisive lack of belief. The, you know, the faith just slowly started slipping away. And by the time I got deep into my addiction, uh, it was gone. By the ripe old age of 26, I was a card-carrying atheist. I didn't believe in anything anymore. And I was ready to argue the point vociferously. Jeff was particularly enamored with the philosophy of seeking truth and idealism that the beatniks like Jack Kerouac embodied. He had the spirit of a philosopher, a poet, and their drinking habits too. And something had to give. When I was drinking uh, heavily, I, I dropped out of college and then I would go on the road and hitchhike around the country, literally. Um, and then I'd come back into college and drop out again and keep bouncing in and out of school. He kept bouncing around the country from Atlanta to Chicago to San Francisco, home to Detroit, then back again. He dropped in and out of college a handful of times. I kept gravitating toward the North Beach neighborhood of San Francisco because that's where the beat poets and... Uh, Jack Kerouac and all these writers used to hang out. So, of course, I was a wannabe writer and um, wanted to go to City Lights, Lights Bookstore and the various coffee houses and bars and so forth, and did. But um, I was not able to really produce anything because I was going so far into my addiction. Jeff picked up odd jobs here and there painting jobs, cooking jobs. He worked as a busboy. But Jeff continued to grow sicker and sicker, eventually unable to keep a job. He developed a bleeding ulcer and a bleeding colon. His malnourishment resulted in neuropathy, nerve damage in the hands and feet. At this point, he was living in a flop house in San Francisco for $7 a night. At that time, Jeff got news that a friend of his had committed suicide. And he couldn't get that idea out of his head. I was completely shot. Uh, I mean, I was just physically, emotionally, and I didn't know it, but spiritually uh, shot. And I just couldn't go on. And I guess that's why the idea of suicide uh, appealed to me. I didn't understand. I didn't really know anything about alcoholism. I didn't know anything about AA or treatment or anything like that. So I... Um, I knew I couldn't really go on, and I didn't really want to die some miserable death, so suicide seemed like a way of taking the matter into my own hands and, and somehow offing myself. And I cringe when I think of it now, but at the time it seemed reasonable, um, which only goes to show that when you're relying on your own thinking and you're the one with the problem, you're really not going to get to a very sensible solution. In fact, you're most, li most likely to get to a really bad solution. And I almost got all the way there. It was chance, he assumed, that his family found out where he was staying. He had long given up on believing in Providence. But whatever you call it, he got a lifeline. A friend of Jeff's brother was vacationing in San Francisco and saw him on the streets and thought he recognized him. He followed him to the flop house he was staying at and immediately called his family. He said, you got to find him. He went into, this is the address of where he went in, and he's going to die. I mean, you've got to find him. And they did. And this was in 1981, long before the era of cell phones, internet, anything. You know, there's 
So it was all very old fashioned landline, you know, find the number of the payphone in the basement of this flop house. I mean, it was crazy. The the work that they had to do to locate me and find a way to speak to me. Uh, but they did it and um, and really got to me just in the nick of time. At first, Jeff blew them off. He went, got a drink, sat in the park, and then got the nerve to call them back. Finally called them back because I realized, um, you know, I just wasn't going to make it. So... Um, that's, that's how that transpired. They were able to bring me to a moment of clarity um, because I realized that, you know, I really was going to have to kill myself. And they got me um, on the phone and my father asked me, you know, how are you doing? And there's nothing magic about that question. But I thought, well, uh, let's see here. I can't walk. I'm bleeding from both ends, and I'm going to kill myself in about 15 minutes. This is what I'm thinking. I'm not saying it. But the sun was shining, you know, the birds are singing, and, you know, I all of a sudden said the most intelligent thing I'd ever said in my life, which is, I think I need to go into a hospital. Well, boom, 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 boom. I don't know where it came from, but they, the next thing I knew, there was a plane ticket home. The next day, he was at Hurley Hospital in Flint, where the first detox bed was available. And I was sick, sick, sick. And I'll never forget um, the head doctor coming in to talk to me the next day. And when he walked into the room, I mean, first of all, I'm sitting on the side of the bed. I'm shaking. I'm sweating. I'm wearing those funky little detox you know, hospital gown that ties up in the back so your butt's hanging out, <laughs> you know. And he walks in and it's like God himself. He's like this big, powerful black man in a white coat and a stethoscope and a clipboard. And he pulled up a chair and he got right up in my face and he said, boy, and I just about jumped out of my skin. He said, boy, you've got a disease. He said, you're not responsible for what you've done. And I said, great. And he said, but you're responsible for what you do now. And I said, shoot. Actually, I didn't say shoot, but it's like that. He said, your disease is incurable. He said, the most we're going to be able to do is put it in remission. We're going to give you a program to follow, 12 steps. You follow that program, the disease will stay in remission. You stop following that program, and the disease is going to kick you in the butt again. And he stood up and he walked out. I didn't have any idea what he was talking about. I didn't know anything about disease or 12 steps or anything, but I remember that little homily as though I heard it yesterday. Jeff learned things in their discussion he had never known about alcoholism before. While his mother had battled alcoholism growing up, he had no understanding of alcoholism as a disease, an illness. For the next 10 days, he detoxed in the hospital. He attended his first AA meeting right in the hospital and then agreed to go to a 30-day inpatient program at Maple Grove. AA and the program helped Jeff get sober, but he wasn't sold on the spiritual aspects at the heart of the 12 steps and coming out of the program left him with a huge void and a huge, huge question of where he was going next. 
He went home and lived with his parents. It was humiliating. He went from a big bad alcoholic hitchhiking the country writing the next great American novel to a 24-year-old roommate of his mom and dad's. Toward the end of that program, I was walking around and outside, and it was November in Michigan, so pretty depressing weather out, you know. <laughs> and I came to a realization, and that realization was that I was going to drink again, and I was going to die. And I'm like, no, 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 no. But I realized, no, you're going to drink again, and you're going to die. And I didn't want to drink, and I didn't want to die. But you see, I was still locked in that atheism that, that I, I could not grasp this power greater than myself, God as I understood him. I couldn't get to the spiritual peace at the heart of the 12 steps. As an atheist, the question spoke out into the void, a starry sky with no response. So I was desperate to find a solution. I was thinking about it all afternoon, all night. But, you know, when you're locked in that place, then I'm the only solution. But I'm the guy with the problem. So that doesn't work. Um, and finally, in the middle of the night in my, in my treatment center room, I got down on my knees and cried out to the God I didn't think I believed in. And I just said, God, help me. God, help me. And in the next moment, all of heaven opened up for me. It was like I was in a, a waterfall made of light and made of love. And it was just washing every foul thing out of me. I was in the presence of Christ. I was in the presence of this great power that created the universe. And it was amazing. And I knew this was the most amazing experience of my life. And I realized I was going to be able to stay sober because it wasn't me anymore. There was a God. There was a power greater than myself. I just had to accept it. I had to believe. I didn't need, you know, to uh, get into some theological argument. This was a matter of the heart and this tremendous spiritual experience. I'm still on my knees experiencing all this. Suddenly, step one, step two, step three were not fantastical nonsense, but like the beads of a rosary, prayers sustaining him from one moment to the next. He knew it wasn't possible to have an experience like this every day. Lightning can't strike twice in the same place. But he was also set up in a space to succeed. He went to AA meetings. He met with his sponsor. He took things one day at a time, just as he had when he was living with a pocket full of change too short to buy a bottle each day. Now I was going to have to start working the program. Now, I, because with rare exceptions, God works through people. I mean, it's great if you get to have the white, night, white light lightning bolt experience like I have, but most people don't. And it's not going to be repeated on a daily basis. So I realized that God works through people. Where do I find the people who understand my story? AA. So I started to go. And they were so kind and they were so welcoming. And they just said, keep coming back. Jeff came back the next day. And the next day. And the next day. These were the people that buoyed him when his dad died 16 months after getting sober. 
These were the shoulders he cried on when his young marriage ended. And these were the meetings that stitched together his broken pieces when his brother committed suicide a few years later. They were the group that applauded him when, after five years sober, he pursued a career in alcohol and drug counseling. So life continues to be difficult, right? Life is not a bed of roses. There are wonderful times. There are fantastic things that happen. There are terrible things that happen. That's part of the warp and woof of our existence. Uh, But uh, the friends that I have in recovery and the program itself and my faith have continued to get me through. And uh, I'm just so grateful for everything that I've been given because left to my own devices, I would have wound up dead. Even after getting help, if I hadn't really surrendered at depth and, and set aside my intellectual arguments and really reached out with my heart and soul, um, I wouldn't have made it. Pray that, exactly right. Um, there's a, uh, a saying in AA that pain is the touchstone of all spiritual growth. And I think that there's a lot of truth in that. And a lot of times people just have to experience a good deal of pain, I know I did, uh, to break through that pride. Today, Jeff works with families in the thick of rescuing their own addicted family members as a clinical interventionist and addiction specialist. He has been guiding families into recovery for more than 30 years. His work has appeared on CNN, PBS, Forbes Online, and many professional journals. He and his wife, Deborah, who we met while working as a counselor in Florida, have written the best-selling book, Love First, A Family's Guide to Intervention. I, I like to think of something that Mother Teresa once said, which is, we are not called to succeed, we are called to try. And that's an important distinction. I do my very best all the time but I'm not in charge of the results. Uh, at the end of the day, that's, uh, uh, that's, that's God's bailiwick, not mine. Detroit Stories is a production of Detroit Catholic and the Communications Department of the Archdiocese of Detroit. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Being a mom is the most challenging and rewarding job in the world. At Catholic Charities of Southeast Michigan, they make it a bit easier for moms who are feeling alone, struggling financially, or who need an extra hand to help them establish a secure and happy family. To learn more about the ways you can help moms in need, visit ccsem.org forward slash respect life.